Hi, and welcome to the eighth episode of the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra podcast. I'm Felipe Tristan, assistant conductor, and the clip of music you just heard was Capriccio Español by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. Today, we're happy to have Nick Armstrong, artistic director of the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra, in the studio to talk to us about the coming concert on February 19th at the Brooklyn Museum. Later, we will talk to our principal flutist, Stephen Belenko, who has been a member of the orchestra for more than 20 years. Hi, Nick. How are you? Thank you so much for being here today. Philip, it's my great pleasure. Good to see you. Thank you. So this program is very interesting. Please tell us what pieces are being performed on February 19th. Okay, we'll start with a very rousing piece that everyone knows, which is the overture to Orpheus in the Underworld of Offenbach. Of course. It's also called a Kankan theme, I believe. Yes, it, it has probably Offenbach's most famous tune, apart from perhaps the Barcarolle from Tales of Hoffman, which is also very famous. True. But the Kankan, of course, is a popular dance at that time, very popular at the Folie Bergère, for instance. Wonderful. And after that comes... Will we turn the mood a little dark after that. We're doing the four movements, which are the incidental music that Faure wrote for Metalink's play, Peleus et Melisande. And yeah. um, that also has a very famous flute solo at the Sicilian. Of course, I know the solo very well. I bet you do. <laughs> then after that comes... We're doing seven movements from an orchestral suite, actually two suites that William Walton wrote called Facade. And the background to that is he was the protege of a very unusual, very uh, idiosyncratic family, the, the Sitwell family. He had met the youngest brother, Sacha Everell Sitwell, when he was a student at Oxford. And they had become very close friends. And the family um, basically took Walton under their wing. He was one of the very youngest students ever admitted to Oxford University. Rumor had it that he was the youngest person to be um, admitted to the university apart from Henry VIII. Wow. Probably not true. But at the age of 16, it was, he was very young nonetheless. Um, and the sister, whose name is Edith Sitwell, was a poet, um, very much an avant-garde poet in her own day, a lot of writings. And she had written a sequence of some 40 short poems. And she had invited William Walton, the very young William Walton at this point, I think 21 or 22, to write music for 21 of them. Yeah, that's fantastic. So after the Walton facade comes what piece? Well, we come right back home via Paris to Gershwin to an American in Paris. Of course. Wonderful. A favorite of many. Wonderful program. So I see some comic flavor in these works. There is some elegance to it. But at the same time, well, there's tragedy in the Peleas and Melisande, the foray. So how, how do you come up with, with this program? Well, it started really with the Gershwin, and I wanted to work back to see what kind of influences Gershwin took with him to France and also picked up when he was there. Yeah. He fell in love with Paris, as everyone who spends any time there does, and was very influenced by the street sounds, the, the bustle on the Parisian Boulevard, and was inspired to write this piece. He was actually inspired to write this piece for the Schirmer family, who were his hosts in Paris. And the first version, a shorter version of this, he dedicated to them as a thank you note for looking after him while he stayed in Paris. He also took the piece to Ravel. There's a very well-known st apocryphal story of Gershwin asking if Ravel would give him composition lessons. And after several transatlantic letters backwards and forwards, when Ravel asked Gershwin how much he made writing musicals on Broadway and Gershwin told him, Ravel reportedly uh -oh. wrote back and said, I think I should be taking lessons with you. <laughs> 
Apparently, it's not necessarily true, but it's a lovely story and it gets repeated a lot. Wow. Nonetheless, wow. they were friends and they knew each other. And in fact, Gershwin did study a little bit with, with Ravel. Ravel. They became good musical friends, but Ravel felt that he really couldn't teach Gershwin. It was not the moment for that. So he introduced Ravel to Nadia Boulanger, who was the big, big, big name in the European. teacher of the time, yeah. And she told Gershwin the same thing that she told Astor Piazzolla, which was basically, go home and be who you are. There's a, a quote that she says, you shouldn't be a second-rate Ravel when you're already a first-rate Gershwin. Right. And that's when Piazzolla exploded his career. Yes, yes. He went back to Argentina and, and created the Tango Nuevo pretty much. So there seems to be an interdisciplinary influence in this program. There's jazz and an American in Paris and also other genres that come into play in this program, opera, ballet, theater. So please tell us now about the Offenbach, about the Orpheus in the Underworld. Good. It's actually a very nice connection, I think, because when I hear the Gershwin, especially the very two opening themes that kind of compete with each other, they remind me immediately of the Can-Can. And certainly later in That's the Gershwin, there's a, there's a real sense that we're in Paris and we're actually at one of the theaters on one of the great boulevards and we're hearing the little theater orchestra playing real French music. And that just took me back to, to the Can-Can and to the overture. In so, a way, it sounds almost like the same piece 50 years before. Yes, yes. I love it, yeah. yeah. And so next in the program will come the Forêt Peleas and Melisande, which you and your own words describe as dark. What do you mean? Well, the story that, that it portrays, and in fact, the music that Forêt wrote, I think there were 17 separate pieces for the play that captured just moments. We talk about Impressionist music in France, and the whole Impressionist notion comes specifically from painting. But there, I think, were a whole variety of other forms of that. And certainly Debussy's opera, based on Pelleas and Melisande, is, I think, fairly representative of the play itself. The play is much more about an evocative mood throughout rather than the a sequence of events, right? Yes. So a symbolist approach. Faure himself, I think, was too conservative a composer, can we say, to really find that as a musical language. His language is still very much, we recognize, the, we recognize yeah. the tunes, we recognize the harmonies for the most part, the, the they're real yeah. keys. Um, but the music nonetheless captures, I think, this wonderful, almost mist-like environment that the play, I think, was that Metalink set out to capture in the play. So even the cortege, the funeral march at the end, it's, um, it's a very solemn moment, but it still rises, it still falls, it still has very beautiful harmonies to it. The flute solo in Sicilian that we talked about, the spinning song, which is the beginning of Act Three of the play, where Melisande, who um, is a princess who has apparently been lost in the woods... And she is amnesiac. She doesn't know where she comes from or who she is. And she's discovered by a hunter who is Peleas's huntsman from the castle. He finds her wandering in the woods and brings her back to the castle. And um, at this moment, beginning back three, she is weaving. And there's a lovely running motif in the strings and the first violins imitating the sound of the spinning wheel. If you, if you know any of the Schubert songs that involve spinning, you'll notice exactly course, the same kind of, of language. Um, wow, so there is, there is a very ethereal uncanny beauty to, to this darkness now that you describe it so eloquently. Now I'm really looking forward to hearing this performance. Well, after that will be the Walton uh, facade. I, I'll be honest, I did not know this piece. I was very curious. And it's great. It's, as I said earlier, I think it's comical in a way. How would you describe this piece? Um, I described the orchestral version as just a very clever sequence of songs. They weren't even really songs. They were music that was supplied to accompany the spoken word. 
in that first performance at the Aeolian Hall in London, 1923, Edith Sitwell recited her own poetry, but she was chronically shy. And so she recited the poetry through a megaphone, through a curtain, so the audience could not see her. I was actually just reading an article about a performance of this in London, maybe two or three years ago. And the headline was, rap music was invented in 1922 in London by Edith Sitwell. Wow. And that's a reference really to the language that she uses. The poems don't make any sense. They're very unusual. They tell little stories, but her interest was much more in the sound of the words as they followed each other. I'm going to read one of them. Do you mind? Yeah, please, please. So this is one of the movements that we're doing. The name of the, of the musical piece is called Tango Pasadoble. So two dance forms that are Spanish-inspired. And they change tempo. So the tango is slow and the pasadoble in the middle is twice as fast. So what Walton did when he set the music to this was to create that sense within the music and, and how the music was then recited. It was recited in rhythm. So if you have an actor nowadays doing these poems, they have to be able to read musical notation to get the rhythm right. So I'm going to do my best for ah, that. How cute. So tango pasadoble. When Don Pasquito arrived at the seaside... Where the donkey's high tide braid, he saw the bandito Joe in a black cape, whose slack shaped waved like the sea. Theta throated treatise, noting wheat is silver like the sea. The lovely cheat is sweet as foam. Eris notices that she will steal the wheat king's luggage like Babel before the League of Nations grew. So Joe put the luggage and the label in the pocket of flow the kangaroo. Through the trees, like rich hotels that bode of dreamless ease, fled she, carrying the load and goading the road through the marine scene to the sea. Don Pasquito, the road is eloping with your luggage, though heavy and large. You must follow and leave your moping bride to my guidance and charge. When Don Pasquito returned from the road's end, where vanilla-coloured ladies ride from Sevilla, his mantillaed bride and young friend, were forgetting their mentor and guide. For the lady and her friend from Latuque, in the very shady trees on the sand were plucking a white satin bouquet of foam while the sand's brassy band blared in the wind. Don Pasquito hid where the leaves drip with sweet, but a word stung him like a mosquito, for what they hear they repeat. Wow, that's wonderful. So, in that, that, the sense of the tango in that deed, I'm... Absolutely. And then the faster dance. Yeah, that's wonderful. So quirky and, and, and clever. Unfortunately, what we lose in the orchestral version are the words. So to make up for that, Walton's created this really lovely, colorful orchestral score. Very short. I think the longest of the movements is the Tarantella, which comes at about three minutes. So seven movements. It's right around 18, 20 minutes of music that we listen to for this suite, but very colorful. There are so many colors, so many things to listen to in this concert. Do you have a favorite piece in this program? It's funny because I, I love them all. And I've known the Walton since I was very young. We have In England, we have A-level a, a examinations and I did A-level music. And one of the required pieces we had to study was the first suite from Facade. So I've known it for a long, long, long time. Wow. Never conducted it, never, never played it. Um, but I was itching for the opportunity. So, so that is definitely the, the theoretically should be my favorite piece. But I have a blast conducting the Offenbach. It's so much fun. Oh, the Offenbach. I thought it's you would so have said fun. the An American in Paris Gershwin. <laughs> wow. Wonderful. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being here today, for, for sharing all this fabulous, wonderful information. And now we know what to listen to in the concert. Thank you, Philip. It's a great pleasure. It's wonderful working with you, too. Thank you for that. Thank you. 
We're back in the studio, and we are honored to have Stephen Belenko, principal flutist, with us today. Hello, Stephen. Thank you for coming. Hello, it's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me to to join you this evening. Of course, and so we understand that you have been a member of the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra for how many years? Well, it's a little scary to say it, but it's been about thirty-five years. Wow! Since I was a student at Manus. Wow, that's wonderful. Yeah. I earlier I said something around twenty years, over twenty years, but it's definitely a lot over twenty years. More than twenty years. Wow. So an institution right here in the <laughs> studio. So tell us first. I would love to hear about how you got started in in music. Sure. Well, I actually started with other instruments before it. I actually took up the flute rather late. My first instrument was the accordion. Actually, when I was uh, four years old, there was an accordion around the house. My my mom played it.、Uh, she played piano too.、Uh, my dad played guitar. My sister played a little violin. But there was an accordion there, and I picked it up at four years old. And my mother had to put it on me and take it off because I was too small to <laughs> actually hold it. But I loved it. I played it starting at four into maybe third grade or fourth grade. Were you able to do an actual like extension oh, yeah. Yeah. or yeah? Wow! Yeah, and I was good. My family tells me I did performances when I was like five or six. Got a teacher, and、uh, how long did you play accordion? Until、uh, I was maybe about ten or eleven, and then I stopped because I was I was studying privately, and my teacher was I just wanted to play music. Yeah, and he was giving me all these scales and etudes to play, and I just wanted to go out and play with my friends rather than practice scales. So, so、wow. I kind of put it aside. I actually still have my accordion at home. Do you play it?、Uh, sometimes, yeah. Actually, at a, a couple of years ago. Colleague of mine, and turned out she played accordion. She we actually started getting together and playing duets, which was a lot of fun. But I realized after all those years, I'm, I was pretty rusty. So that was that. Then my next,、uh, when I started seventh grade, I placed into the music, the band class in、uh, middle school. You chose the flute because? Nope, not yet. Saxophone. Oh. But I started on、uh, baritone saxophone because that's where the opening was. Started so, on the baritone. I started on baritone, which I hated because it was the parts were very boring. <laughs> Uh, but I love playing. My first experience playing in ensembles, so we play. I played in bands and stuff, and then switched alto、uh, saxophone the next year and played that through high school. You played baritone sax and then alto sax and then the flute. Then the flute, yeah. It was、uh, actually kind of accidental because growing up, I I really wasn't exposed to classical music very much.、Um, it was rock music, j-、uh, jazz, pop music, that kind of thing. Big band music that my parents. Listen to, and it wasn't until I got to college. I went to Columbia University, and junior year I had a roommate who listened to a lot of classical music, and that was really my first exposure. And I actually heard the flute really for the first time, and、wow. it just gra- it just、uh, kind of grabbed me. I had I given up the saxophone when I started college. I didn't play. I wasn't playing anything for a few years.、So、I really missed it.、Um, so I actually said, okay, I, I love that sound of the flute. It really spoke to me and just resonated with me, and I just listened to a lot of flute music. That okay, I have to play the flute, but I haven't played anything for a few years. I'm a poor college student. I, you know, where am I going to get a flute? So, I actually got a recorder.、Um, I started with that to get myself back into music. So I started taking lessons and studying recorder with a teacher for a couple of years, and then actually, right when I was graduating college, I had a girlfriend who is a musician. She was a harpsichordist and a pianist, and she found someone who had a A flute. a flute. So, I, I I was able to borrow borrow a flute. I started teaching myself. Well, at this point, you already were 
fluent in other instruments. I was a musician. So yeah, sure, was I was a musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, specifics. Yeah, it's so di- yeah, it's very different. And uh, and then eventually got a teacher. And then basically, I realized, okay, I'm back into music. I want to do this. I love it. Um, I have to get serious about it if I'm really gonna. And I was able to you know, get a few gigs here and there, and I felt I was progressing. But then I decided to apply to Manus College of Music. So you play accordion, barry sax, alto sax, flute, recorder. What else do you play? Uh, the main thing I've studied is uh, Japanese bamboo flute, shakuhachi. Shakuhachi, wow. Shakuhachi I studied for 10 or 12 years with a master teacher in, in New York and studied in Japan. Went to Japan to, to do my final studies and get my... Um, in teaching license wow. in Shakuhachi, yeah. I would yes. love to take a lesson on Shakuhachi. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, because I've studied some of it translated into Western flute. I'm sure you're familiar with the work mm-hmm. of Fukushima that has a oh, yeah. couple of works for, for flute inspired by Shakuhachi. And the other is um, I study tin whistle. I love Irish music, so I play tin whistle. Never got to a point where I'd feel comfortable going out to... A, an Irish uh, bar and jamming Jimmy with people because they can be—they're really <laughs> tough. <laughs> they can be really tough in that uh, world. So but I love it. And then uh, the instrument—I really wish I could play. I took lessons. I tried. It was not very successful, so I kind of gave up. It was the banjo because I always loved bluegrass music. And about six or seven years ago, I bought myself a banjo and said, "Okay, I'm going to learn how to play banjo and get into that kind of music." I found a teacher and studied for a while, but couldn't really get beyond a certain level. So, um, so my banjo career is kind of over. When did the Brooklyn Orchestra came into your life, and how? That was in the early '80s. I actually uh, moved to Brooklyn Heights uh, in the late '70s. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I was just walking by and saw a sign for the orchestra by um, Church of St. Anne's. At that time, it was kind of disorganized, so I just basically walked in with my flute. And actually, in the early days, we'd have four or five flutes nice. sitting there in the section and. In a rehearsal. You can never have enough flutes. Well, <laughs> so I just went with the flow just to get the experience play, uh, playing with the orchestra, and that, that's where I got started. Yeah. Who was a conductor at the time? Uh, at that time, uh, his name was David Aurelius. He was a local guy. How would you describe the, the evolution of the orchestra and of Brooklyn, actually? I'm very curious. Well, uh, in terms of Brooklyn, obviously, it's you know a totally different Exploded. place. Yeah, it's... Uh, now a you know go to destination known around the world. Uh, at that point, it was people because I'd lived in Manhattan before that, so people thought I was just something wrong with me. Why, you know, why would I going to go across the river to Brooklyn? There's <laughs> nothing there. But I, lo- I always loved Brooklyn. You know, the cultural scene in Brooklyn has changed quite a bit. Right, um, and the orchestra. How how has it changed? The orchestra is definitely well. It's improved. You know, by many many factors. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's it's immeasurably better. Than it was at that time. It was very, very loosely structured. People came in and out. People moved around. And so, what? Tell me about in all these years performing with with the Brooklyn Symphony. Has there been a performance that's memorable, or a few of them? Can you tell us about one or more? Um, yeah, I think a few come to mind. One was the uh, we did the das, uh, Mahler Das Lied von der Erde. Wow, a few years ago, and that has, of course, wonderful. Yes, big flute solo. solos, and I thought I did well that night. Uh, and just I listen, actually still listen to that recording regularly because I just I lo- love the piece, and and I think the the orchestra did played very well and was well conducted, and it was a had wonderful uh, vocal soloist for that. So that's one I think uh, we did a Beethoven Ninth, of course, 
it's always just amazing to play. We did that uh, a number of years ago. Big um, pieces. So that comes to mind. Yeah, the big, big nice. pieces. And probably Dvorak Sixth. I love. We did Which that. Which was done recently. Did recently. We actually did it uh, also a few years back, and that has a big flute cadenza. So, of course, so I, I kind of judge pieces by the, the flute part. Well, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, a little selfish. But that was also just as a musical experience. Dvorak is always, for me, one, you know, really wonderful to play. And so uh, about your life outside of music, you teach, I believe, at Temple University? Temple University, yep. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And what do you teach there? I teach in the Department of Criminal Justice. And how is that? I, lo I love it. I love working with students. It's great to be at a university setting, you know, just the atmosphere of learning and excitement of new students coming in. And uh, I like working with graduate students and mentoring, mentoring them. Do they know you're a musician too? Uh, mo yeah, most people do, yeah. And actually uh -huh. we do concert I have next week. We, I started about five years ago. Uh, oh, concert series. Well. Uh, we call it Meet Me at the Music. And it, what it is is bringing professors and students together to perform. Generally, it's music students. It's a very good music school, Temple Boyer School of Music. Wonderful. And professors who are not music faculty, but who are you know competent musicians. musicians. So the idea is to kind of showcase other talents of the faculty and put them together with students. So that's been wow. that's a lot of fun. Well, Stephen, it's been a pleasure to to get to know you a little more. Thank you for sharing your story with everyone. And it's an honor to hear you in the orchestra. And thank you so much again. Thank you very much. A pleasure to, to talk with you, and I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Please visit brooklynsymphonyorchestra.org for more episodes of this podcast and to purchase tickets for our next concert on February 19th at the Brooklyn Museum. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Felipe Tristan. Thank you for listening.